So uh, I guess we'll get started with uh, today's uh, Grand Rounds. And uh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleagues, uh, Marty Crane-Gaudreau and Peter Payne. Um, they have rather unusual backgrounds for uh, the, the type of uh, audience. Uh, Marty uh, graduated from University of Vermont as an undergrad and then did a variety of things in her life that literally took her all over the world in a lot of different capacities. And then she became a graduate student in the, uh, the physiology graduate program and earned her PhD working with Chuck Weir in, I believe, 2004. Um, she did some other uh, postdoc work and then uh, at Williams College and then came to uh, my lab to do some postdoc work. And then at around 2007, she was appointed an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology, which is what she is right now. And uh, she's had a variety of interests, and uh, today we'll hear more about uh, some of those interests. Uh, our other colleague, Peter Payne, is a, uh, a graduate of Harvard as an undergrad. And at that time, he was mainly interested in, in what has come to be called mind-body or body-mind um, studies, uh, how uh, mental states and, uh, and physical um, exercises of the sort that are uh, actually best known as oriental practices, how they influence people in health and in disease. And he has pursued that um, ever since in a variety of capacities as a, uh, a student and a researcher and a teacher. Uh, he's taught some graduate courses at uh, a few universities. And um, what he and Marty, I think, have, have come to is, is they found that the uh, medical uh, establishment, the Western medical establishment, after many years of a variety of people doing research into uh, mind-body work and how it impacts uh, more measurable um, Western physiological uh, aspects, um, is, is increasingly open to the ideas that these sorts of uh, practices and concepts could be uh, very useful for uh, working with patients in various cap capacities. And as, um, as they've been working together, they've been publishing a series of um, quite important reviews trying to synthesize ideas, see where the weak points in the ideas are, and, and, and strengthen them in various ways. And uh, just as one example, they recently uh, published, a, three or four months ago, they published a, uh, a review in uh, Frontiers of Psychology Journal and that review has had 16,000 views and 1,100 downloads in only a few months. And so they seem to have uh, been able to speak to a broad audience who's interested in these sorts of uh, questions. Um, and so with no further ado, I'll, I'll, I'll let them get started on their talk on reconceptualizing stress in the context of cancer. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Steve. Can everyone hear? Mike's working okay? Yes? In the back? Okay. Um, we have to start out with a disclosure statement. Um, Marty Crane Gaudreau, myself, has financial interests in the past 12 months with grant research support from the Flight Attendant Medical Research Institute, Institute the American Academy of Pediatrics, 
Hitchcock Foundation, Health Research Incorporated, which is related to the flight attendant health studies that we're engaged in, and as a board member of the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. Alan Hartford, MD-PhD and course director for this CME activity, reports that my relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of my presentation through peer review. I do not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a device or product, and I am not receiving direct payment from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Peter Payne has no conflict of interest to disclose. What we're going to be talking about today um, is that stress plays a significant role in cancer. That the preparatory set could be used as a model for better understanding stress. That stress affects patients and providers. That body-mind interventions can reduce stress. A little bit about what our peer cancer centers are doing uh, in terms of exploring these approaches. And looking at ways that we might be able to change the paradigm here. And one of my great dreams would be to see Norris Cotton Cancer Center and Dartmouth Geisel being able to lead the nation in stress cancer research. Before we start talking about our ideas about stress and cancer, we thought it was really important to acknowledge the perspective of the National uh, Cancer Institute. And um, this is currently what's posted on their website with respect to the topic of psychological stress and cancer. Physio psychological stress alone has not been found to cause cancer, but psychological stress that lasts a long time may affect a person's overall health and ability to cope with cancer. <clears throat> they go on to say that people who are better able to cope with stress have a better quality of life while they're being treated for cancer, but they do not necessarily live longer. And they go on to point out, however, that the way that the body responds to stress, physical, mental, and emotional pressures, is by releasing stress hormones, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. And that these, of course, increase blood pressure, heart rate, and raise blood sugar. So <clears throat> I don't know whether the best word to use here was however or nevertheless or notwithstanding, <laughs> but we are going to present you a selection of recent studies which strongly suggest that in fact there is a very direct link between stress and cancer mortality, cancer survival, uh, and also is strongly suggestive of what the mechanisms are for this link. So we're going to talk about this under four different categories. One will be the effect of the catecholamines, primarily norepinephrine and epinephrine, which of course are major stress hormones. Second will be the effects of cortisol, the other major stress hormone. Third, we'll talk about the effects of depression and psychosocial stress. And fourthly, we'll talk about the effects of stress on the distribution of immune cells throughout the body. So you can see from this here, um, we're working with beta blockers. So beta blockers, of course, block the effects of epinephrine and norepinephrine, so they offer a window on the mechanism, on, on what these effects are. So um, 
on the target 2010, breast cancer patients who had been treated with beta blockers demonstrated a 57% lower risk of metastasis, 71% reduction in 10-year mortality. So this is relatively typical of the kind of results that we've been seeing here. Uh, there are both human and mouse models. Um, here in a mouse model of mammary cancer, uh, stress-induced neuroendocrine activation, I think it was like forced swimming, produced a 30-fold increase in um, metastasis to the lung and lymph nodes. I should mention that like most of the results that we're going over here, mostly apply to metastasis rather than to the arising of primary tumors. Uh, one, I won't go over all of these, but one other thing that's of significance here in Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2011 demonstrated that propanolol but not atenolol produced these effects, indicating that what's involved are the beta-2 uh, receptors rather than the beta-1 receptors. Uh, cortisol dysfunction, and cortisol dysfunction means either you've got chronically low cortisol or you've got chronically high cortisol, or the rhythm of cortisol during the day is disturbed, so that kind of covers a, a fairly broad area. Um, very much associated with depressive symptoms. Uh, depressive symptoms and cortisol dysfunction, predicted survival in patients with renal cell cancer, also predicted, I'm sorry, also predicted survival in uh, breast cancer, advanced breast cancer, also predicted survival in lung cancer mortality. And um, this experiment I think is interesting. Again, it's a mouse model. Physiological stress response induced by forced swimming promoted leukemia progression, uh, progression and halved the lifespan. And the same results happened by giving them doses of epinephrine or of corticosteroid. Uh, so kind of uh, affirming that model. Depression and uh, social stress also play a role um, on quality of life and survival. For example, a 2006 article reports that chronic behavioral stress resulted in higher levels of catecholamines, which one would expect, and greater tumor burden uh, and more invasive ovarian cancer growth through increased angiogenesis. The inverse is shown in another study where ovarian cancer patients who had strong social attachment, in other words, good, good support systems, had um, increased survival time. And then uh, with depressive symptoms, we'd already mentioned this, depressive symptoms and cortisol dysfunction predicted decreased survival in patients with renal cell cancer. This to me is one of the most interesting articles that uh, we found. And for any of you who are interested and involved in the research side of this, um, this particular article in Psychoneuroendocrinology 2012 shows that the different stress hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and cortisol, orchestrate redistribution of immune cells throughout the body. 
So different immune cell populations show differential uh, sensitivities and redistribution to each of these hormones. Um, and the article goes into a tremendous amount of detail, and so I, I recommend it highly. Another important thing to consider when we're looking at stress is something called the um, inflammatory reflex arc, which of course is um, influenced by stress's effect on the vagal system. And probably most of you are familiar with this, but essentially the brainstem nuclei integrate um, uh, the afferent and efferent signaling uh, resulting in changes in the immune responses. And this is very cartoonish, um, extremely simplified, but one of the things that we all have tended to do as researchers is to silo the way that we look at data. We'll look at the immune system, we look at the nervous system, but we don't tend to look at them together. When you begin to realize how many of the immune cells actually are carrying receptors or heavily influenced by uh, the various neurotransmitters, and to the extent that some immune cells actually produce neurotransmitters, um, there's a wonderful paper, uh, I believe that it was in Nature, showing um, T cells in the spleen producing acetylcholine and feeding them into the afferents of the uh, vagus, the vagal nerve in, in the spleen. Um, the implications are really quite interesting when you think about the interrelationship between the immune and the nervous system. And when we close our eyes to one or the other in what we're doing, we're basically shortchanging, um, I think, our opportunities for uh, discovery. So this is just as a little summary of this. Stress is associated with adverse outcomes in cancer patients. There is beyond what we've shown you here, there are literally pages of um, research that you can find in PubMed. This isn't uh, any secret, really. Uh, stress can interfere with the immune responses to cancer cells. Stress is pro-inflammatory via the um, vagal reflex. Stress can increase metastatic potential of cancer cells. Um, it certainly increases blood sugar. And stress is also known to perturb uh, opioids, steroid hormones, somatotropin, thyroid hormones, oxytocin, luteinizing hormones, and prolact prolactin. Um, the synergies of these effects are still very poorly understood. In some cases, these various neurotransmitters and uh, hormones are understood individually to some extent, but the, they all work in a... Uh, that they're all working at the same time. So we have to look, begin to think about looking at more than one of them at the same time. So let's talk a little bit about patients. I think it's safe to say that patients respond to a diagnosis of cancer with stress. That kind of reaction is perfectly normal. However, 
when the stress reaction, the fear, the anger, the anxiety fails to subside, when it fails to resolve, then you have a chronic state. Uh, in the case of what we've talked about so far, a chronic state of elevated catecholamines, <coughs> disturbances in cortisol level. And that this very likely, from our evidence, impacts survival. So this is like, you know, a common everyday experience, I imagine, with many of you. And we're suggesting ways of beginning to work with that. If we're going to deal with stress, we have to begin to understand what stress is. And this is a little bit of a difficulty because to us, the word stress is quite problematic in a lot of ways. The standard definition of stress from a physiological point of view, elevated sympathetic activity and depressed parasympathetic activity. But the word is used in different ways in different contexts. So a psychologist would use the word in a different way than a neurologist, than a physiologist, let alone an engineer who uses a completely different meaning of the word stress. So, you know, this is a problem, generally, um, in the scientific literature. Um, distinguishing physical and psychosocial stress, the same word is used for both of them, and they share certain things in common, but exactly what the distinction is and what the relationship between those two is, is, is really not very clear, not very clearly defined. Differentiating different kinds of stress. Is the stress that comes about from chronic anger the same as the stress that comes about from chronic fear? That's not clear. We suggest that it's not the case. Is the stress from you know, chronic fear and anger the, the same as the stress of preparing for a wedding? Yeah. Your mic's not on. Oh. Really? Are you hearing me anyway? Yeah, but the other, there's... Uh... Have I just been talking in vain? <laughs> well, this, this is showing its own. <laughs> What's that? All right, well, I'm just going to go on. And if anybody sees me moving my mouth without sound yeah, reaching, you then, you know, would you adjust it? All right, so. Um, differentiating different, different kinds of stress, which again, the use of the word stress kind of implies that stress is stress, that's it. And that used to be believed, but that it's clearly no longer the case. Um, what is resilience? You know, people have different degrees of resistance to stress. What is that? That's not really very well understood. Um, and although this may seem a strange question, for us, this is very meaningful to say, what is the actual nature of stress itself? When somebody says, I'm stressed, no. what is that apart from its neurochemical consequences? We can define certain chemical consequences, but what is stress itself? So we've developed a reconceptualization of the kind of range of phenomena referred to as stress. and. Um, this is actually described in detail in a more recent paper in Frontiers called The Preparatory Set. Um, I'll mention it down here. So we can't you know, do full justice to this reconceptualization, but we'll touch on to some of the essential things. Uh, we believe that this theory resolves a lot of those ambiguities. The theory covers other dysfunctional states referred to as stressful, but not necessarily having that same neurochemical signature as traditional stress. Um, and very importantly for our uh, thesis here 
it provides a framework for understanding the effect of the body-mind systems from a neuroscientific biomedical point of view. That's, that's very important in order to get more acceptance. So, um, you know, this is, this is one of my favorite images, is the sort of the subcortical core of the brain, right? It's a, it's a little bit like the Starship Enterprise or, or, or Klingon Warbird, perhaps, you know, a very powerful entity. And what we're saying is that um, stress, generally speaking, is primarily subcortical. It's not a matter. Stress doesn't arise through rational thought and conscious voluntary decision. It happens on a much deeper level, and therefore, interventions that try to, you know, explain why you shouldn't be afraid of spiders are unlikely to have a whole lot of effect. Right? Um, the subcortical area with its many different nuclei, we see that these various nuclei interact so strongly that you can consider this, this subcortical region, we're talking mostly the limbic area and the upper portions of the midbrain, acts as a single complex dynamical system. So that's kind of what's, what's indicated here. Um, and we're specifying here uh, subcortical nuclei associated with emotion, so the amygdala in particular, subcortical motor centers like the periaqueductal brain, brain nucleus, visceral response, the hypothalamus, the autonomic nervous system, and alertness, arousal, the reticular arousal system, all interact in a very complex way. The function of this subcortical area, which we share with, the, with mammals, right, is to generate a, or one of the functions, is to generate a preparatory set. So the kind of image is, you know, you walk into a room full of uh, <coughs> chairs and people looking at you, Right? And you get ready to deal with that situation. Okay? You prepare for that. Or an animal gets into a scary situation. Right? They don't just kind of walk in like this and then if something scary arises, they react to it. They prepare okay, for it. Okay? And how you prepare for it determines the kinds of responses that you're liable to generate. So that's the concept of the preparatory set. And of course, each preparatory set has its own particular neurochemical signature. There's going to be a different neurochemical environment depending on your preparatory set. So what are the components of the preparatory set? Well, first of all, as we say, there's the neurochemical signature. And then, you know, if so here's a preparatory set. Posture, posture and muscle tone. Breathing, okay, my breathing pattern is going to alter. My emotion, my affect is going to alter, okay? My autonomic state is going to alter, right? Um, my attention, the deployment of my attention, my orientation is going to alter. And my expectations, and when I'm saying expectations here, I'm not talking about you know, conscious reasoned things, but sort of implicit expectation. If I'm in a state like this, clearly I'm expecting something dangerous to happen. Whereas if I'm in a state like this, clearly I'm expecting something nice to happen. Right? So we regard these as the four, uh, I'm sorry, the six main 
uh, components of the papyri set. And in a way, these can be seen as possible handles whereby one can influence the preparatory set. All of those components interact, and there is actually significant evidence in the literature for the interaction of many of these things. Um, single complex dynamical system. The, the idea of a complex dynamical system is very important here. We're not going to go into detail about that, but this is to do with the behavior of the core response network. It behaves as a complex dynamical system. So what are the possible kinds of preparatory set? So this is very, very tentative. Um, and it's following the work of Jak, Jak Panksepp, who is known as the father of affective neuroscience. And what he postulates, with plenty of evidence behind it, is um, seven different core emotional patterns. These are all subcortical emotional patterns. And each one of them has a particular set of subcortical nuclei that are associated with it. And each one has a particular set of neurotransmitters, where there's some overlap, but each one has a distinct set of neurotransmitters. From Panksepp's point of view, he's very much saying this is not just a question of affective state. The affective state at this level is inseparable from motor preparedness, awareness, and in fact, the six components that I already mentioned. So although Panksepp doesn't use the term preparatory, uh, preparatory set, that's pretty much what he's talking about. So we're saying you can be in a state of readiness, governed by rage and anger, governed by fear and anxiety, panic, separation, grief, seeking, expectancy. This is actually a really important one and a little harder to understand, but the state of when you're researching something new, that state. Um, lust, sexuality, uh, care and nurturance, and play and joy. And these are all states that we can share, we share with all the animals. We would also add um, hunger, thirst, and thermoregulation as the basis for other possible preparatory states that you know, bring you into a certain set. So the preparatory set obviously influences the neurochemical environment of the cells in the body, including the immune cells and tumor cells. Um, very importantly here, and we don't have time to go into this in great detail, but a preparatory set normally organizes for a certain purpose, and then when either the purpose is achieved, I run away, right? <coughs> or the situation changes, and I realize, oh, this is not so scary after all, then the preparatory set subsides. And either you go into a sort of neutral state, or you go into whatever the next state is. These preparatory sets are not designed to last indefinitely. When they do, that's a problem. So then you have a, a chronic neurochemical environment that the body was not really designed to tolerate. So that's the point at which you start to get these negative effects. Now, just to point out how this kind of framework, the preparatory set framework, applies to and maybe sheds a little light on classical ideas of stress. So classical ideas of stress, when rage, fear, or uh, panic fail to resolve, 
right? Then you have a state where, among other things, there will be elevated levels of catecholamines and cortisol. Okay. However, we can talk about rage as a preparatory set. We can talk about fear as a preparatory set. And we can talk about grief as a preparatory set. And both of those, all three of those, have a different neurochemical signature. There's overlap in the sense that they all develop catecholamines and cortisol, but each have a different chemical signature, as well as a different set of brain nuclei. <coughs> so it's perfectly reasonable consider the possibility that these should be considered as three different states, and their effects could be explored differentially. It's not just stress. Well, so we all have, to some extent or another, fixed preparatory sets that can go way back to childhood experiences. Childhood trauma can leave us in a fixed preparatory set that perpetuates for one's whole life right? and has effects, ongoing effects, on the neurochemical environment. Significant evidence that this is the case. It affects patients, it affects providers. Learning to handle your own or to work with your own preparatory step, uh, step, set restores <clears throat> resilience. You become more resilient, more able to cope with adversity. Professional capacity can be improved. You're more able to provide therapeutic presence to your patients. If you're locked up into a certain preparatory set, that lessens your ability to, to connect with patients. Also, stress-related things can inhibit um, perceptual and cognitive ability can interfere with perceptual and cognitive ability. And of course, if you're feeling less stressed, there's going to be increased job satisfaction and less burnout. So if we're trying to modify the preparatory set, whether it's our own or a patient, <coughs> what do we want to modify it to? What's the optimal preparatory set? Well, so of course, as I already said, different situations require different preparatory sets. But there's a common theme to functional preparatory sets, as well as to a kind of like a neutral, resting preparatory set to which one could return after a particular you know, set of arousals. Um, resilience, like I already mentioned. The capacity to deform and bounce back. Okay. Um, openness, an openness to the actuality of the situation rather than the projection of some kind of image that might mask contact with reality. Flexible, the preparatory set has to be capable of changing and of ending when that's appropriate. Strong, the preparatory set has to have a sense of capacity to generate whatever the required response is. Intelligent. Right? It's got to be able to discriminate, to make fine discriminations. And positive intentionality. The preparatory set should be organized towards survival of the self, survival of the species, survival of your patients. Okay, so we're going to give you... Is that... yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so how to restore the preparatory set. Um, we use the handles. We use the components of the proprietary set. So we focus on posture. So we want a light, stable, balanced, flexible posture. The breathing wants to be easy, 
full, relatively slow, and involve the whole body. You want comfortable interoception, right? Is the way that we gain conscious experience of our autonomic state by the anterior cingulate and the insula. So we want a comfortable internal sensation in our body, no knots in the stomach. Um, calm and engaged affect. So my emotion, my emotions are calm, but not detached, engaged, and present. Open, responsive attention, right? Not a withdrawn attention and not a narrow tunnel vision. Open, responsive <laughs> attention. And expectations match to the present situation and easily able to change when the situation changes. So now we're going to show you how to do that. So I'd like everybody please to stand up. <coughs> and you'll find some parts of this a little bit easier if you take off your shoes. It's not a requirement, but part of it will be, some of it will be easier for you. Okay, great. All right, so going to start by something called the shakeout, which is just a great exercise. I should say that the shakeout is, it, it's, a, it's a quick and easy and powerful exercise. It's not the most profound and sophisticated exercise, but it's a really excellent lead-in. I'll say a little bit more about that later on. So we're going to start off by shaking loose one hand, okay? And you want passive movement of the hand so that you can kind of feel all the joints separating apart from each other, opening up. You're kind of stimulating the blood circulation. You're encouraging any chronic tension to let go. And then you move onto the elbow. So now we, we want not voluntary movement of the elbow, but passive movement of the elbow so that you can feel the same kind of limpness in the elbow. Now, I just want to mention one thing as we start with this. A teacher of mine used to use the phrase like this. He would say, like, loosen your elbow or fail to do so. Right? Either one is fine. Because if, you, if you're successful at getting an unusual sense of looseness, that's great. But also, if you're, if you're able to say, like, oh my god, I, I can't let go of my elbow. That's weird. That's also a success. Right? So, any difficulties that you have with this, don't label that as a failure. Just say, ooh, a new tension. What fun. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, so elbow, loose and free. And now the whole shoulder girdle. Shake your torso. That's good. Yeah, shake your torso. Let all this go loose. It's almost like you're trying to shake the arm off of your body. Now, this is a place where several of you are going to find, like, oh, it doesn't really go. It's Okay, terrific. Okay, so now stand easy, okay? Close your eyes and feel the difference between your two arms. You'll probably notice that the shaken arm feels tingly, feels more alive, perhaps a little warmer. It may feel a little longer. And guess what? It is. As I look around now, I see many people with one arm longer than the other. <laughs> if you move the arm a little bit, you may notice that it feels a little lighter and freer. 
So what we can say is we have changed your state. We have changed, in a way, your subcortical state, because it's your subcortical system that influences the gamma effort impulses to the, to the muscles that control tone. So you have changed your subcortical state in that area. Okay? And you can kind of imagine if the whole of you felt the way that the shaken arm does, you would perform a little better at anything that you try to do. Okay, let's do the other side. Hand, wrist, fingers, nice and loose, with that sense that the joints are opening up. Space for the synovial fluid in there. Nice and free. And the more you pay attention to the sensations as you shape, the more effective this will be. And then moving up to the elbow. Nice and loose. The action actually comes from the shoulder. The elbow is nice and free. I have been accused of uh, um, plagiarizing the hokey pokey. <laughs> <laughs> and now shake the shoulder button, shake your torso, your ribcage, loosen that shoulder, or fail to do so. Either way, that's good. All right, good. All right, so now again, stand quiet, close your eyes, and feel the sensations. proprioceptive, interoceptive sensations. Feel the sensations, the changed state through your chest and arms. Now, you know, I'll just say one thing here, which is that, to point out this connection, in that state, you will have an easier time reaching out to people. And you will also be more able to push people away. You'll have more control over your interaction with your environment and other people. So, you know, it can seem very strange to think that a very physical activity like this can influence things that we normally think of as psychological. But it does. All right, now, for the next phase, you're going to need to just get a little balance, because we're going to just shake one leg. So, you know, Grab a partner's shoulder or back of the chair. And you're going to shake. You don't have to lift your leg up like that. I'm just going to have to demonstrate, OK? Shake the foot. Remember that you have as many bones in the foot as you do in the hand, OK? Almost. Shake it loose. Feel your foot. And imagine the foot letting go and releasing. All right, that's great. Now the knee. So you're going to kind of support your thigh a little bit like this and get the lower leg to just swing freely, very effortlessly, like a pendulum, so that the knee relaxes and lets go. Okay, great. Now the hip joint, okay? So shake your pelvis. Don't try to, that's good. That's good. Shake the pelvis like you're trying to get that leg off your body, right? Who needs two after all? Just shake it off. Shake it off. All right, that's great. That's great. This is a little harder than the hands. Now stand easy, close your eyes, and feel the difference between your legs. Feel the sensation. And in particular, notice any difference in the way that the two feet meet the ground. You feel that? Yeah. You'll probably feel that on the shaken side, 
the foot seems somehow to be more connected to the ground. You are more connected to your support. Feel the difference in the way that the thigh joins into the pelvis on the two sides. You may notice that, yes, it does feel different, that there's more of a sense of connection on the shaven side. And if you feel the whole leg, you may have more of a sense of the leg as something connecting you to the ground, almost like it's a conduit, whereas there's less connection through the other side. Okay? Now, if it can make sense to you that, like, if you're moving into some difficult-to-handle situation, you really want your body to be feeling the way that the shaken leg feels, you're going to feel more confident, more powerful, have a sense of more capacity than if your body feels the way the unshaken leg feels. Again, we're shifting things at a subcortical level. So let's do the other side. Foot, ankle, toes, nice and loose. <coughs> Knee joint, loose, easy, swinging movement to let go of the And then the tricky one, shake the pelvis, let go of the hip joint. Shake the pelvis, let go. <laughs> Really see the loose ones from the tight ones. <laughs> yeah, but no judgment. It's a matter of observation only. Okay, so now we'll see who's loose in the tail. So you're going to imagine that you've got a big, long dinosaur tail, big, thick dinosaur tail, okay? coccygeal vertebrae, uh, and hang it down into the ground. That, that's good, exactly. Waggle your tail. That's right. Lash your tail back and forth. Yeah. Use your kinesthetic imagination. Remember, this is cancer ground round. Okay. All right, so now lift your tail up behind. Arch the tail. Okay. You should be able to bring the tip of the tail all the way around so that you can see it over your head. <laughs> all right, all right, now drop it. Drop the boom. And feel that sense of release in the low back. Good. So now notice that sense, like legs are boom. Tail is boom. Rooted into the ground. Now pay attention to the other end. Atlanto-occipital junction. Those couple of top vertebrae with no discs, right? Completely free movement. So the head moves. So why does the head move like that? Why are there no discs in the atlanto-occipital junction? Because of the perceptual reflexes to the eyes and ears. So it's this. It's not this. Okay? So if you look around, you notice there's a range of free natural movement. Or you try to listen cock your ear. So that's what I'm talking about. This sense of the head being loose on top of the spine. So just roll it around a little bit. Loosen that. That's great. And then let it come to a stop. And try to get the sense that your head is kind of poised on top of the spine. Like it's the observation turret. Poised on top of the spine. So that, and this is really important, so that your awareness 
does this. When I focus my awareness like this, my head does this. When I open my awareness, naturally the head comes back, balances in the middle. And you can almost get a sense of a 360 degree awareness so it goes around behind you as well. Let's open awareness. Now the connection between the two, right, the spine, loosen the whole torso. That's right. Like a snake or an eel, loosen the torso side to side. Play a little bit with this way too. Ripple the torso. Okay. Everything nice and loose. And then again, just come back to easy standing, eyes open, and just kind of feel this sense. I'm rooted into the ground. My head is floating up into the sky and my awareness is open. My arms, my chest is open and light so that they can move easily into the environment. So notice your posture. Notice your breathing. Probably notice the breathing is a little fuller, a little longer, involves a little more of your body. Notice your awareness. Notice your emotional quality. Probably a little lighter than before. Notice your sense of expectation that like probably, apart from saying, what is this guy going to do next? <laughs> you're in a state where there's not like fixed ideas of what's going to come, but a state of more openness and contact with the present moment. I don't know, I don't need to tell you what that could do for your diagnostic capacities. So like I mentioned before, you know, you can't very well come into, you know, come up to your patient's bedside and say, no. <laughs> So with more sophisticated ways of doing this exercise, you can just directly, through the use of intention, you can directly move into that state rather than have to go by the kind of quick and dirty shakeout sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so thank you very much. <laughs> sit down now. There's a whole bunch of different training methods. There are traditional Asian techniques. There are Western-based somatic techniques. There's forms of body-oriented psychotherapy, all of which are directed fundamentally in this same kind of direction. And although not many of them use this terminology, from our point of view, we would say that like all these body-oriented systems act via their influence on the preparatory set and the subcortical centers. Retraining the preparatory set, as you've just experienced, is easy and fun, requires no particular equipment, gives you some immediate results, uh, and doesn't take a whole lot of practice in the sense that once you get a feeling for this different state, you're going to be more able to return to that state just during your everyday life. It doesn't require setting aside a lot of time for particular practice. 
Okay, so I think I'll stop there for that part. <laughs> so we'd like to mention that different cancer centers um, are approaching the issues that we're talking about in different ways um, and recognizing the role of stress. Um, for example, here at Norris Cotton Cancer Center, we do address stress, and we have a group of people um, that are dedicated to that particular thing. You folks who are uh, providers probably have a better feel for, you know, how available that is and, and, you know, the benefits that come from it. One of the things that's emerged is that there is an organization called the Academic Consortium of Integrative Medicine and Health. Um, these are medical centers across the country with um, medical schools and who, you know, have actually joined this group that's called the um, Academic uh, Consortium. Um, and they, they're leading um, schools, Yale, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Mayo, Stanford. Um, I don't need to read this list to you, and this is only a partial list. Even the University of Vermont has a integrative medicine program now where they're addressing many of these types of issues. And, and I want to emphasize, as far as we know, these are complementary forms of therapy that help, you know, that they're looking at things as complementary. This is not in any way looked at as a way of, you know, taking away from all of the other good treatments and therapies and so on that we have. One of the centers that's nearby that probably some of you who are practitioners have uh, patients who are treated at Dana-Farber. Um, they, for instance, have something called the Zakim Center that I believe started in the year 2000, and they, these are some statistics from their site. Um, they went from 778 visits the first year to they report in 2008 having over 4,000 visits, and they went from three practitioners to having over 20. They offer Qigong, meditation, acupuncture, massage, Reiki, movement, creative arts, exercise, and nutritional consultations. Um, I think important here is, is one of the things that's somewhat of an intangible, but when we go back to the issues of stress, patients feel empowered by exerting control over their exercise, what they eat, and otherwise feel as though they're helping um, themselves during cancer treatment. Um, and um, Memorial Sloan Kettering um, has a much bigger, in fact, uh, Department of Integrative Medicine. Um, on their page, um, they mention touch therapy, mind-body therapy, acupuncture, creative therapy, nutritional counseling, exercise programs, uh, stretch uh, to stretch for strength and to promote relaxation. They offer their services not only to the patients, but patient families and indeed to anyone in the public. Um, I think there's a differential in the pricing for the various services, depending on whether or not you're an inpatient or outpatient. But um, they have a, a picture on their website. It looks like there's about, I don't know, 35, 40 people perhaps that are currently featured as being, you know, in that department. And of course, it's a bigger medical center, but something that they consider to be important. So, you know, with some of the work that Peter and I are doing, um, we're we have a grant right now actually to work on what's called meditative movement forms of Qigong 
where we're um, studying the benefits or potential benefits. We have specific biomarkers and physiologic markers that we're looking at, and we're actually doing this in patients who were, um, they're not patients, excuse me, they're subjects who were exposed to secondhand smoke and who have pulmonary disease. And um, so we, we're actually, you know, studying that right now. But this is part of our thoughts about being able to change the paradigm in the way that we're doing research, not just for ourselves, but others here at Dartmouth. Um, we believe that these interventions can improve outcomes in patient care, um, that if we can increase these sorts of availability, it means a win-win outcome for Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, there's certainly um, not only are, in our view, opportunities in terms of improved patient care, but also economic opportunities um, for both the cancer center and for the hospital. And it offers an opportunity for new focuses of attention on cancer stress research. Um, one of the things that we would very much like to see is that our institution might become a leader in this area. And one of the things that we would point out is that even though there are all these other cancer centers that are looking at integrative medicine, very few of them seem to, and there are specific ones where you can see this sort of um, evidence emerging from their research, very few of these appear to be truly based in a neuroendocrine immune perspective on the effects of these different types of modalities and how they would affect disease. So we think there's a tremendous opportunity for our institution. Um, there certainly are grant sources out there that are untapped and that we really ought to be going after. I'd like to, as I say, hope to see us here at Norris Cotton Cancer Center and um, at Dartmouth being leaders in this area um, throughout the century. And so these are three specific questions that we think are very appropriate, very doable. We're focusing our research on what are the measures of stress that matter in terms of cancer, morbidity, and mortality? What is the efficacy of the body-mind methods in reducing stress, reducing those measures? Can body-mind resilience training, both of patients and of providers, can that improve patient outcomes? So we'd like to say thank you to some of the people who've stood behind us um, Steve, who um, is our partner in crime in a variety of different ways. Uh, Paul Geyer, who's been a long-term mentor and supporter. Uh, Jim Burnett, who's in neurology. Um, Stephen Porges, who's a philosopher-scientist, um, polyvagal theory, and a very interesting person. The Flight Attendant Medical Research Institute for funding, American Academy of Pediatrics, Hitchcock Foundation, and Norris Cotton Cancer Center, who provides us with office space and bench space. And, you know, we really, really appreciate it. So thank you all very much. And thank you very much. We have questions.
minute or so if there are questions. I don't have a question, um, but, uh, and I'm not as sanguine, Marty, as you and Peter are about whether we should be leaders in this field, but I think for the people who are here, they should know that the Cancer Center provides both for patients and family massage and Reiki and creative writing and uh, music classes and a visual arts program that's actually quite expansive. We have movement classes, we have Tai Chi classes, we have mindfulness-based stress reduction classes, and all these things, um, nutrition counseling, are available in the Cancer Center, available daily and for free. And so this is an area in which we have um, you know, decades-long engagement. So uh, I think it's nice that other institutions are, are following, but, um, you know, we should take a lot of, um, of what well, we should feel very good about what we have done for a long time right. here right. and what's available today. Right. we just like to see the, you know, the fact that there's opportunities for research here, and that's where we can actually also see some changes in in money, um, you know, research comes with you know grants, um, and that it's a it's a valid topic for uh, research. One more question, if anyone has it. Okay, great. Thank you.